going to ask that you'll take your Bible or your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you'll find a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. Feel free to use that. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for you and for all that you've done for us. We humble ourselves before your mighty hand and the fact that you are a mighty God. We are not worthy call upon your name, but we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for what he has done for us, and for what he has made possible for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that we can praise the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt him and magnify him. Lord, thank you that you have given us your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that your word is living and effective and cutting and penetrating and discerning. We pray that you indeed would use your word in our lives to cause us to be all that you would want us to be. May you use your word to bring salvation to some today. May you use your word to cause others to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So have your own way, bring glory to yourself through the preaching and teaching and hearing of your word. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. More than once during the Sunday morning worship service, I have referred to the song, Lead me to Calvary. In fact, it was just two Sundays ago uh, when we looked at Jesus' last supper with his disciples that in the conclusion of that message, I spoke of that song. The verse at the end of each stanza of Lead me to Calvary are the words, Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. The song declares that Christ's death on the cross is a time in which we should remember Gethsemane. And in particular, it says that it's a time that we should remember the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it even goes further and points out that Gethsemane, that time of agony of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaims Jesus' love for you and for me. And so Gethsemane is to have a special place in the hearts of the people of God. And we have to make sure that we don't forget it. And one of the ways that enables us to make sure that we don't forget it is that we go to Calvary and think about all that took place when Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins and for my sins. Our text today takes us to Gethsemane. That's the focus. It's the passage that God wants to use to help us to think more deeply and more seriously about all that took place on 
the cross of Jesus, at the crucifixion of Jesus. In no other passage, what we find in Mark and in the parallel passage in Matthew 26 and in Luke 22, do we find such compelling words that lets us inside of what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in order to appreciate that, Mark shares with us some things that had to be shared with him and gives us some insights into what our Lord was feeling and what he was thinking. He has been proclaiming over and over again that he will die on Calvary's cross, that they will kill him. He's been proclaiming that ever since Mark chapter 8. And he has been marching resolutely to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they would crucify him on a cross. So our Lord is not surprised about what's going to happen in a few hours. He's well aware of it. He's been proclaiming it. He's been shouting it. He's been impressing it upon the disciples. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. But the good news is I will rise again on the third day. But even though the Lord knows that reality, and even though he's been proclaiming it, it seems like when he gets into Gethsemane, the reality of the cross overwhelms him. This one who Isaiah calls the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the one who will be crushed by the iniquities of us all, it hits him with full force like never before of what's going to happen when he dies on the cross. And we need to pause and ponder and think and reflect upon what our Lord goes through in Gethsemane. Yes, it portrays his agony. Yes, even more importantly, it portrays his love for you and for me and for every person in this world. In a way that words can't really capture, minds can't comprehend, our Lord experiences some things in Gethsemane that ought to cause each and every one of us to say, thank you, Jesus, for enduring the cross for me. Thank you for dying in my place. The horror of the cross hits Jesus like never before in our passage. And I trust that God would help us to see that and that it will cause us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for him each and every day, to cherish and treasure him above all sins. Yes, we think a lot about the death of Christ, but today, our passage lets us see what Jesus is thinking about that death and what that death actually means to him in what he will experience. So our text provides us with three elements that stand out in this painting of Gethsemane that's found in verses 32 through 42 of Mark 14. And if we're going to appreciate Gethsemane, if we're going to make sure that we don't forget Gethsemane, then we're going to have to zero in on each one of these elements. And the first element to notice in the painting of Gethsemane is the intense agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
the intense agony of Jesus is presented in these verses. We have the setting in verse 32. It says that they came to a place named Gethsemane. That they refers to Jesus and his 11 disciples. Judas Iscariot is off playing his role as the betrayer. Remember that these 11 disciples and Jesus were a part of the Lord's Supper. And after they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as they were traveling to the Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus Christ predicted the desertion of the disciples and also predicted the denials of Peter. Well, our text brings us to the actual place called Gethsemane. It was on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It was a garden, according to the Apostle John. And it was a place that Jesus had visited before. John tells us in John 18 that Jesus and his disciples would go there. So it wasn't an unfamiliar place. Gethsemane is an Aramaic term that means olive press. There were olive trees there. It was a garden that was enclosed with walls. And Jesus had been there before. And Jesus and his disciples arrived there. And Jesus says to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. He says to the eleven, I I want you to take a seat. I want you to sit down. I'm going to do some business. I'm going to go to my father in prayer. And And you sit here until I have finished. You sit here while I am praying. But as we continue reading in verse 32, we see that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So out of the 11, he picks three. And these three we're familiar with. They're known as the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. These are the ones who witnessed when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, his 12-year-old daughter. They were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus raise her from the dead. They were also eyewitnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus was changed, his glory was shown among them. So they have been privileged in many ways. And Jesus takes them. He doesn't take all of the disciples. And Jesus can do it the way that he wants to do it. He doesn't have to treat each person the same. He takes these three along with him. Because he now wants these three to witness his intense agony. They've seen his glory. Now they're going to see his agony. And they're going to hear about his agony. Why these three? Well, it could be because Previously in the gospel, Mark, they each boasted about how they're willing to die with Jesus. Remember James and John, one of those favorite seats with Jesus in the kingdom, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, are you able to die the death? And they say, sure, Lord, we will. And we remember last week, Peter in his arrogance even though sincere, but sincerely wrong in his arrogance, saying, Jesus, I'll die with you before I deny you. And so maybe the Lord has chosen these three, not because they're his inner circle, but because he wants him to realize that they cannot trust in themselves. When we think about this intense agony of Jesus, we see the visible expression of it in our text. 
It's not just that Jesus talks about it, but it's visibly seen. Mark narrates the account for us. And Mark says that Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. So as Jesus is taking them along further into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus became very distressed and troubled. That was something that could be seen visibly. That's not just talking about what's going on on the inside. Something emotionally had broken out into the life of Jesus. So that Mark could say that he was very, very distressed. He was overwhelmed. A a circumstance had hit him like never before that caused the Lord to be distressed, to be broken, to be overwhelmed, and speaking especially about what was going on emotionally. Mark uses another term. He says that Jesus was troubled, full of anxiety, broken. And I don't know all the details of what that looked like. But that's what Mark wants us to see. The Lord Jesus Christ, very distressed and troubled. The the, the humanity of Jesus, so to speak, breaking out in his deity so that his emotional state is evident. And I don't know if you've ever been there where you've just been hit by a circumstance or a situation. And it just overwhelms you, overtakes you. And I think in my own life, and I'm not trying to compare this at all to what happened to Jesus, but I remember sitting right on that pew. In September of 2016, after the home going of my mom, and just made it all the way through the service. But then at the very end, just being overwhelmed, just being taken. And you might have experienced that same thing, but our Lord is experiencing it to the ultimate degree. Here he is in this garden of Gethsemane. Here he is with these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, as he's leading them further. They see something with their eyes. And they see Jesus amazed, not really amazed, but shocked and overcome by a circumstance. So the visible expression of Jesus' intense agony was seen. But I've also noticed the verbal expression of Jesus' intense agony. It's not just that they saw something. It's not just that Jesus experienced something, but Jesus takes the time to verbally communicate his intense agony to his disciples. He says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He he talks about his personhood. He talks about himself as a human being and he says, my soul, who I am, I'm very, very intensely distressed and grieving. I'm going through immense grief. That, That grief has overwhelmed me to the point that I feel like I'm dying. I feel like life is being taken away from me. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of going to the cross. He's thinking about the cross and all that it will mean. And he says, in light of the cross, I'm deeply grieved. I'm grieving to the point of death. I'm about to die. My grief is so heavy. My grief is so sorrowful. 
And after saying that to his disciples, he says, remain here, three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and watch. I'm going through something heavy, something intense. I'm agonizing. I want you to be with me on this. Remain where you are and watch. It's not so much he's saying, watch for my enemy. He's just saying, watch out for me. Watch with me. What I'm going through is no normal thing. So I'm calling on you. Watch with me. What is it that causes such intense agony? What's causing Jesus to say that my soul is deeply grieved? I'm very distressed. I'm anxious. I'm troubled. No doubt is connected to the cross, but we'll see that in a moment. We'll see him referring to what's troubling him, what's bothering him. When you look at the intense anger, I'm sorry, the intense suffering and sorrow and agony of Jesus, when you look at this painting of Gethsemane, don't ever forget the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave that out of the painting. His internal suffering at this point in time will equal, so to speak, what he experiences on Calvary's cross. The thought of what is going to take place causes intense agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. The second element to, to notice in the painting of Gethsemane is the intimate prayers of Jesus. In verses 35 and 36, we see that not only is Jesus agonizing in the Gethsemane in the garden, he's taking time praying and crying out to God. In one of the most trying times in his life, what does the Lord do? He resorts to prayer. He goes to his father in prayer. And I want you to see the, the privacy of the intimate prayers. When you look at the beginning of verse 35, it says that our Lord went a little beyond them. That is, this was going to be something that took place between Jesus and his Father. This is not corporate prayer. It's not calling upon friends to pray for you and help you, so to speak. This is mano mano. This is Jesus one on one with his Father. And sometimes, my friends, that's all we can do. I know we want others to help us. I know we want people to come by our side, and we should expect them to do that. But there are some times where it just has to be us and God where we just have to get all by ourselves. And so Jesus goes a little bit away from the disciples. Luke says it's a stone's throw. But I don't think it's the world champion stone throw that's thrown the stone, but it seems to be that it was still close enough that they could hear Jesus praying. But Jesus was not interested at this point in time and including the disciples, the inner three. This is a time where he's by himself. And I want you to see the desperateness of this, of these intimate prayers. 
Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus fell to the ground. He's left the disciples at one place they're sitting. He's taken the three disciples further. And now he says, I want you to watch and, and stay where you are. But he goes a little bit further. And Mark just simply says, he fell to the ground. If you throw in the version of Matthew and Luke, you find out that Jesus began to kneel. And as Jesus began to kneel, obviously he fell to the ground. So that Matthew says he's praying with his face to the ground. That's not your normal posture for prayer. Normally, Jews prayed standing up. That's not even the normal posture of prayer for us. We, we simply lower our head. And some of us have a problem even lowering our head, so we just close our eyes. And, and no one would be able to look at our prayer life, so to speak, and see how desperate we are. But our Lord was desperate. This was an urgent matter to him. The weight of the world, so to speak, the weight of the cross is upon him. And what does he do? He resorts to intimate prayers. And we learn the content of his first prayer. It's kind of expressed indirectly. We don't hear the actual words that Jesus spoke. Instead, Mark tells us what Jesus said. Mark said Jesus began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. If it were possible. As Jesus prayed, he wasn't going to a weak God. He wasn't coming to an impotent God. He wasn't coming to the man upstairs. He's coming to Almighty God. And he assumed that what he is asking is possible. That it can be done. And that's his mindset. That's his attitude in his intimate prayers. He understands that God is able to answer him. And what is it that he wants? He wants the hour to pass him by. That's not a favorite term of Mark, the hour, but it is a John. And when John normally uses it, he's talking about the cross. He wants the cross to pass him by. Here is our Lord saying over and over again to his disciples, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. But when he thinks about that event and the implications of it, he comes to intimate prayer and he cries out to his father and he's saying to his father, can this hour pass by me? I wanted to go away. And he says that knowing the full ramifications of what that would mean. But he's not thinking so much about you and me at this time. He's thinking about his intimate relationship with his father and what the hour will mean for that relationship. And we'll expand upon that in a moment. But the content of the second prayer is direct. We find out what actually comes out of the mouth of Jesus. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou will. So here is the intimacy of the prayer. Abba, Father. Two terms that basically mean the same, Abba. Term for intimacy. We've gone too far in saying it means daddy. He's not calling him daddy like a little child. But he's addressing him 
his father as father, as a young child and a grown child would do. And he's saying it in one language, Aramaic. Then Mark interprets it and puts it in Greek. It says, Father. Abba, Father. You don't find words like this too often in Jewish literature or even in the Bible. Here our Lord is communicating with his Father. And it's not an estranged relationship. It's not a distant relationship. This is intimate prayer between the Father and the Son so that he can come and say with intimacy, with closeness, a relationship, Father, Father, your Son who reverences you, your Son who respects you, your son who has a relationship is coming to you. And he rehearses the fact of the omnipotence of God again. He says, all things are possible for you. God, you are almighty. There is no question about your power. You can do it. The only thing you can't do is something that is contrary to your character. But he says, all things are possible. When you come to prayer, when you come to God in prayer, do you believe that? Do you believe that all things are possible? Do you believe that he can really answer what you are requesting? And then he gets to the heart of the matter. He says, remove this cup from me. The cup of judgment. The disciples in Jesus just drank a cup. A cup of wine that symbolized Jesus dying and shedding his blood for the salvation of people. And Jesus is now saying the cup of death, the cup of wrath, remove it. And it parallels what he said earlier. This hour, let it pass me by. Let let the cup be removed from me. But then he teaches us a powerful lesson. He lets us know that prayer is not what, about what I want, but prayer is about what God wants. And he says, not what I desire, not what I want, but what you want, what you desire, what you want. And when we come to God in prayer, yes, we know he has the power to answer. But, but our goal is not for God to display his power, but rather for God to do his will, to accomplish his purpose. And so here is our Lord crying out to the Father, remove the cup, but then realizing it's not what Jesus wants in his Divine human nature, so to speak. Divine nature and human nature. As he's wrestling with the idea of the cross, it's not what I want, but it's what you want. Some of the faith teachers and the health and wealth gospel would tell us, you can't pray like this. It shows you got a lack of faith. You tell God what you want and you believe that God will do what you speak. But here's our Lord in experience intense agony and is involved in intimate prayers, communicating with the Father and saying, Father, I come to you as an obedient son. I come to do your will. 
It's not about you doing my will. Is that all right with you? When you come to God in prayer, can you leave the, the prayer time and, and be content and be satisfied that this is the will of God and it might be contrary and against your will? Are you going to throw in the towel? Are you going to abandon Christ? Are you going to go out and do your thing if he doesn't bow down and do your will? Or will you and I submit to the Heavenly Father? His will is always best for us. His will is always best for us. And so, what is it? That is causing this intense agony. What is it that is causing Jesus to pray? Remove the cup. Let this hour pass by me. He's thinking about what is going to happen in less than 24 hours when he is crucified on the cross. And he knows that when he takes upon the sins of the world in his body on the tree, as First Peter 2.24 says. When he becomes cursed for us. When he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. When he We'll say a little bit later on in chapter 15, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's thinking about that horrific moment, that event, when there's going to be separation between the Father and Son. Something that is beyond our comprehension, but something that is so horrific that it causes intense agony in Jesus' life. So horrific that these intimate prayers are being cried out where he wants to pass by this hour. He wants the cup removed. But he ends his prayer by saying, it's not what I want. It's your desires and will that I submit to. When you think about the cross. Don't just think about the, the crucifixion as an event, but think about what Jesus experienced when he who knew no sin became sin for us. When the Holy One in his body bore our sins on the tree. When ultimately the Father turns his back on the Son and causes Jesus to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? That's why we can't forget Gethsemane. That's why we can't forget Jesus' agony because it proclaims loudly and clearly Jesus' love. Not just the actual death on the cross, yes, that proclaims it, but here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are getting a glimpse of what that event will mean for Jesus when he dies in your place and when he dies in my place and pays the penalty for our sins. The last thing that I want you to see, the final element to notice in this painting of Gethsemane is the insensitive sleeping of the disciples, beginning in verse 37 and ending in verse 42. 
Jesus has told his inner three, remain and watch. Jesus leaves them and cries out to God in intimate prayer. And when he's finished praying, he returns to Peter, James, and John. He doesn't just return one time, but after the first time, he leaves. And then he returns a second time. And then he leaves again, and he returns a third time. And each time that he returned, the results are the same. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus emotionally is experiencing the greatest intensity and agony that he's ever experienced up to this point in time. And here are his disciples and his inner three that can't watch. They can't stay alert. They sleep. With friends like that. How are you going to get help going through things? <laughs> and you come to your friend, they're sleeping. But notice the insensitive return, the insensitive sleeping of the disciples at the first return of Jesus. In verses 37 through 39. He came and he found them sleeping. And Jesus directs his words to Peter. Calls him Simon. That's old school. Uh, he's Peter now. The, the rock. But maybe Jesus is taking a little jab at him. He, he's speaking to Peter, Mark tells us. But he says to Peter, Simon. Simon, are you asleep? He calls Simon, Peter, on the carpet. The one who just said, even though everybody else will deny you, not me. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, Peter, could you not watch for one hour? We don't have to assume Jesus was praying for one full hour, but it was a period of time, enough time for Peter and James and John to fall asleep. And it doesn't take much of us much time to fall asleep. Sometimes uh, when I preach, I don't even get out of the first word of the introduction and, and eyes get heavy. But, but here, these disciples, they were tired. It was a long day. Uh, this is probably around 11 p.m. to midnight. They've gone through a lot. And Jesus said you couldn't watch for one hour. And he just tells them, keep watching and praying. I need you to be with me, not just for me, but for yourself. Keep watching and praying that you might not enter into temptation. And he gives out a little truth. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this could relate to our spirit as energized by the Holy Spirit. Is willing and wants to do it, but the flesh is fighting against us. But it could just simply mean that there are times that we want to do something. And I think about athletes sometimes. They want to do something. No, their spirit is willing, but sometimes the flesh doesn't cooperate, doesn't follow along. And so Jesus went away and he prayed again and prayed the same prayer, the same one that we looked at earlier. And what happens? We see the insensitive sleeping of the disciples at the second return of Jesus. He came again found them sleeping. And this time Mark gives us the reason why they were sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And I get an amen on that. Eyes were heavy. Trying your best 
to open up them eyes. But the eyes lid, so to speak, just seem like they want to close. They just want to sleep a little. And that's what was going on. It didn't say that it was okay, but this is what happened. And they didn't know what to answer. In the most intense moment of Jesus' life, Jesus says, watch and pray. And he comes once, he comes twice, and there they're sleeping. Jesus, what can we say? We failed you again. And then we see the instance of the sleeping of the third return of Jesus. He came a third time. And the implication is he went away a third time, prayed the same prayer. Let this hour pass from me. Let this cup be removed. And after praying it, he comes back to his wonderful inner circle of disciples and asks the question, are you still sleeping and taking rest? Rhetorical question. Jesus knows the answer. He comes back, they're sleeping. Their eyes are closed. He's not trying to gather information. It's our Lord. It says, forget it. I'm through with you all. I'm through with it. No, he does, he does not allow others to deter him from fulfilling God's plan for him. And so what he does in the remaining verses is he predicts the betrayal. He says, it is enough. That's an expression we don't fully understand, but, but it's like he says, okay, it's done. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So what should he and the disciples do? Should they run and flee? No, Jesus says, arise. And now it seems like he's with all of the disciples. Remember at the beginning, eight of them were sitting. So he says to all of the disciples, arise, let us be going. Why? Because the one who betrays me is at hand. And the next time we look at Mark 14, we'll see in verse 43 that while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up and basically betrayed him. I pray that hanging on the walls, the wall of your mind, will be this picture of Gethsemane. That mentally there will be a picture of Gethsemane. That includes the intense agony of Jesus, the intimate prayers of Jesus, and the insensitive sleeping of the disciples. A picture of agony that you should never, ever forget. A picture of love. Jesus' love. Knowing full well all that the cross would mean for him, he chose to still go to the cross and pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. My friends, you'll never, ever, ever find someone to love you like that. Gethsemane proclaims not just the agony of Jesus, but equally it proclaims the love of Jesus. And if you are without Christ today, these verses proclaim that Jesus loves you, that he went to the cross and died in your place for you, that you might have eternal life. And for those of us who are saved, these verses proclaim how much Jesus loves us. 
so that the end result ought to be, ought to be a life of love and devotion to him. Where I surrender all to him. Where each and every day I choose to follow him and live for him. And if I'm wrestling about should I indulge in sin or should I follow Jesus? Can I just remind you to not forget Gethsemane? Not forget Jesus' agony? Not forget Jesus' love for you? and love for me. May God help us never, ever, ever to forget Gethsemane. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, utterly amazed, marveling that you love us so much that you would allow your son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life. Father, may we never see the cross just simply as an event. May we always keep in mind what our Lord experienced on that cross and how it produced intense agony in the Garden of Gethsemane for him. How to produce intimate prayers to such an extent that he wanted to bypass the cross and wanted the cup removed. We were so grateful, so thankful that he surrendered to your will and pleased you and ultimately took our place and pay the penalty for our sins so that we can enjoy eternal life and the forgiveness of sins in an intimate relationship with you. Lord, etch in our minds and in our hearts the truth of Gethsemane. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.